This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, welcome to The Table Podcast. My name is Bill Hendricks. I'm the Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. And I start with a question in this edition of The Table. What do you think is the number one need for leaders today? What do leaders need right now more than anything else? An idea? A vision? A strategy? Hope? Leaders need all of those things and more, I believe, but a leader's greatest need, in my judgment, is actually a person, a person that we call a mentor. That's taken right out of Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens their friend. The image there is of a piece of iron that has, through use, become bent, dulled, it's lost its edge. And the only thing capable of knocking that iron back into sharp usefulness is another piece of iron. And so the image is of a person working iron, beating on a mallet, a sword, some implement, in order to make it useful again. It takes that image and it contrasts it over against a person having the same kind of influence on another person. The way we'd say it today is we rub off on each other. Well, that's what leaders need. They need another person to rub off on them in a positive way. It's life-on-life influence. And that's the model, of course, that Jesus left us. Go and make disciples. Life-on-life impact. And today, I have Larry O'Donnell with us who knows a lot about mentoring and its implications for leadership. and. Uh, Larry, take this the right way. I don't know whether your name will be uh, a household name for our listeners, but there's at least no. a, there's a couple of claims to fame that you have that they may recognize. One is you at one point served as the president and COO of Waste Management, uh, which is a Fortune five, massive Fortune 500 company, and most of us associate waste management with uh, dumpsters and garbage trucks and hauling away. Uh, stuff. And uh, at the time you were with Waste Management, you had a dumpster fire on your hands, and yes. you had to lead a whole turnaround of that organization, which then you did, and it gave you the credibility to write a book entitled Management Waste, Five Steps to Clean Up the Mess and Lead with Purpose. So uh, I want to come back and talk about messes, because our world is certainly in a big mess right now. And then, of course, some of you may recognize, Larry, you were actually the first CEO featured on the hit television show, Undercover Boss. And uh, we, we may have time to get into that. So I'm fascinated with, with where you ended up there and all the accomplishments in addition to that. I mean, where was growing up for you and how in the world did you get into business in the first place? 
Well, I grew up in my family's construction business as a young boy. Uh, it being a family business, I guess the child labor laws didn't apply. <laughs> so I think my first job I started maybe in second grade, sweeping the floors and stocking the shelves of our, of our hardware and lumber yard. We had a construction company and then uh, progressed from that to being an electrician, a framing carpenter, a plumber, heavy equipment operator, until eventually I was running crews uh, in high school. And then uh, eventually I graduated from that and uh, went on to college, got my engineering degree, and hmm. then got my law degree. Then my career has been – you couldn't have charted it. God bless me with an incredible career that was all over the place. I practiced law for 10 years. I'm really an oil field guy. Uh, spent uh, almost 10 years. I just determined that I actually enjoyed business more than practicing law, so I wanted to move out of law practice and into business. I got opened a door for me to go to Baker Hughes, which was the third largest oil service company in the world. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, we're talking about mentors. The CEO there knew what I was trying to do, took me under his wing, and he served as my business mentor until he passed away just a few years ago. So, so what was I was very blessed with that opportunity. What, what was something that that guy did that you look back and say, that shaped me or that opened a door or that marked me in some way? Uh, his name was Jim Woods, and he just had this incredible ability. to. He never gave me the answer. But he had this ability to always ask questions that I had not thought of. I would go to him, even after I left Baker Hughes uh, and went on to Waste Management to help turn that company around, uh, spent ten and a half years there. But I would call him all the time, even there. Uh, I'd say, look, here's the situation. And he didn't know that industry. I didn't know that industry before I got there. Hmm. But I could explain the situation and tell him how I had thought about the various options, and then I'd ask him, what am I missing? And he just had this incredible ability to ask me questions that caused me to think deeper about what I was, whatever the issue was right. that then led me to the right answer. He didn't know the right answer, but he, he just had this incredible ability to do that, and he served me well throughout my career. Wow. Just he was very gifted in that. Um, he was like, kind of almost like a a quasi board of directors for you. Well, what the reason I think people ought to have a mentor um, is you don't want to have somebody that's in your organization. I mean that can happen, but it's better if they're not. Right. When he was serving in that role, his total motivation was to help me. Hmm. He didn't have any other influences of like, oh, you know, I really kind of want to – if it's in his own company, you know, right. there might be some other other influences on what he was doing. Absolutely. All he was thinking about is how can I make you be the best you can be? How can I help you? Hmm. How can I help you arrive at the best decision that's going to help you in your career or help you be a better leader? That was his – 100% motivation. And so uh, – and, and the other thing about that is when you are CEO, or it doesn't matter what kind of leader you're in, when you're thinking about really difficult situations, if it's not well thought out and you take it to your boss or you take it to your board or you take it to your team 
and they start coming up with the questions that you haven't thought of, you don't look as good. No, you feel uh, like it, a, it's not so good, you know. Right. And now I think you always need to get input from them because they sure. are going to have Absolutely. ideas that you haven't thought about. But some of the more obvious things that maybe you wish you would have thought about, it really helps to have a mentor help you think through those things. Yeah. Uh, and and then you can also respond to questions from your board, from your boss, from others. Even a pastor, a senior pastor. I happen to serve as a mentor to several pastors. Hmm. Uh, and it's things that we can talk about that before they take it to their elder, uh, their elders or whoever, you know, we can kind of talk through some things and I can maybe help them think of some issues that maybe they haven't thought of before, not because I have the answers, just by asking some other questions. Well, don't you think that most of the questions that that person in that role is going to have is some form of the statement? I I know I don't know what to do here. Always, right? Always, and and nobody really. Or I think I know, and but I'm not sure. I'm not. You know, there could be some problems here. Maybe there's something I'm not seeing. Right, right. Because if it was easy, anybody could do it. I mean, there's always unexpected consequences or unexpected things that can happen, no matter what you decide. Yeah. Uh, and so at least having someone, I've always found it valuable, not that they necessarily know your business, but they've just got more experience in life, life experiences that they can draw upon. It might not be the exact same situation, but they can draw upon those life experiences to then sort of say, well, what about this? Have you thought about this? Uh, I, I just always found that so invaluable. I'm, I'm curious, what do you, what do you think – uh, created that desire on the part of – did you say his name was John? Or Jim. 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 What caused Jim to care? Like where does somebody come by caring? I'm just – I've always been fascinated by that. What what induces that? Do you think? I can't answer for him. I can answer for me because I also feel like not only should everyone have a mentor, they should also mentor others. Mm, good. And it was actually something I started doing even in high school. I was really? leading Bible studies in high school, and I can remember as a junior and senior really pouring into a couple of sophomores and freshmen wow. uh, that I'm still friends with even today. That's great. Uh, and so where does that come from? One is I think it's biblical. Uh, I think God gives us these experiences so that we can help others. There's a there's a reason we're left here after we become Christians. Right. Uh, you know, if we're already going to heaven, why not just zap us away? Well, that's right. not the plan. Right. I, you know, Jesus modeled it for us. Pour into some disciples, get them up, ready to go, so that they can then go make disciples. And so, I think that's where it comes from. I think, you know, I think we're made that way. We're made in the image of God, and that's what Jesus modeled for us, so we ought to be doing it. Um, I also do it just because I get tremendous joy out of it. Hmm. You know, Throughout my career, I've tried to pour into people and help them advance in their careers, and now to look back and see where people are, uh, I'll give you a great example. Dude. You can look in the book. It, uh, it, the foreword is written by the current CEO of waste management, and I write about him in the book, and he then gives his perspective uh, in the foreword. 
But he was a guy that when we first got there, waste management was a mess. Uh, they had acquired, call it 1,200 companies all around the world. Nothing had been put together. Hmm. The financial systems were a mess. Uh, when we got there, we had to hire a thousand accountants just to come help us close the books, oh, and we didn't even have a good record of what all our assets were. I that, couldn't have even told you where all of our landfills were. How does that happen? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, when I started, I had thick, dark hair, and within about two years, this is how I looked. Uh, it was the biggest mess you've ever seen. And we hired this young guy. He was a fa financial analyst. Uh, at one of the airlines, and we hired him, and he came over, did a great job helping us dig into the data, try to figure out what's causing all the problems here, and um, eventually he came to me one day and he said, Larry, I'd really like to move into operations, hmm. and I, I was shocked right. because yeah, the numbers he, guys he, he's a numbers this. guy, right, right. and I said, well, that's interesting. You know, that takes a completely different skill set than what you're really good at. And he goes, I know that. And can you help me fill that gap? Wow. And I said, sure, if you're up for it, but it's going to be uncomfortable. And he said, I've realized that, but hmm. I, I, that's what I really want to do, and I think you can help me. And I said, okay. I said, I'll wait. Let me. I'm going to try to find a small operation somewhere. I have no idea where the opportunity is going to come. And the first one that comes, Feel free to say no because it may be in a terrible place. Yeah, and maybe right. you and your family had a young family. Yeah. Uh, sure enough, I came to him and I said, "This is not a good place. I won't say where it is. I want to dis <laughs> disparage any place." Uh, and he said, "Let me talk to my wife." And he had a very, very supportive wife. Anyway, long story short, I moved him and his family all over the place. Hmm. Some good places. Some not. Some so not so good. Right. And his wife was always supportive. His kids were always supportive. They viewed it as an experience for learning for all of them. Um, and the other thing is he was very coachable. Anything I would point out, hey, why don't you try this or why don't you do this, he was always willing to do it, even wow. though it was very uncomfortable. And you look at him today, he is not the same guy. I mean, he transformed, and he is such a wonderful leader. Eventually came back, became CFO, and now he's CEO of the company. Wow. And so that's just I, – I take great joy in that. I mean, it wasn't me. He, sure, he, did, he did what he work. needed to do, but at the same time, you know, you take some risks on people and you move them into positions, and with that, you can expect that they're going to make mistakes. You hope it's not a bad one that right. hurts the company too bad, but that's how you learn. And you don't get on them when they make the mistake. You say, hey, you know what? Show empathy to them. I made a ton of mistakes. Right. Let me tell you some of the mistakes I made that were a lot worse than the one you made. Don't worry about it, except learn from it. What did you learn from it? Let's talk about that. And at least now you've gotten that out of the way. You won't make that one again. You know what not to do. Exactly. So, man, put it behind you. And then in terms of the rest of the team, me as the leader, just – Take the blame for that. Don't, right. you know, just say, yeah, that was my call. That was my mistake. And you know what? That person then will be willing to take the next risk and right. keep growing and growing. Then they're ready to go. And so I don't know. I'm just wired where I've always enjoyed building teams, uh, pouring into people, seeing them progress. 
And I don't know what it is. God just my plan that God gave me was every ten years I needed to get out of the way, let the rest of them move up. I moved on and hmm. started a new team somewhere and started over. Uh, it was always difficult to do that. I cried at every one of I'll those bet. places when I left because I knew I would never be as close to that team as I was then. But also knew I needed to get out of the way, let them come. They were ready for it. Let them all move up. And I would be there to support them and uh, go somewhere else and start all over and get well, re-energized. Well, I was going to ask, you get re-energized by starting a new team. So how do you go about doing that? How do you, how, what do you look for? In, in, when you put a team together, what are you looking for? Sometimes I would draw on people that had been on my team elsewhere. Um, for instance, when I went to Waste Management, there were a lot of people from Baker Hughes that came over with me. Hmm. Uh, and when I then went after, after Waste Management, I decided I'd never been an entrepreneur, so I went and started an oil service company. I was employee right. number one, uh, wore all the hats for a while till I could build the team. Uh, but eventually, we built that to a little over a billion in revenue, and now it's a public company. I drew on people from both Waste Management and Baker Hughes. So I've always sort of kept some of those relation, a lot of relationships, relationships. Uh, that I draw upon. But then it's always good to bring in new people mm -hmm. also. And mm -hmm. I would always look for people not like me. I want to hire, get people on the team that are a lot different than me. That have gifts you don't have. Exactly. Because if we're all thinking the way I am, That's a problem. we're going to go off the cliff. Um, you know, I value immensely having a team with different experiences, uh, different points of view, and then they all know, if they don't know me well, they learn real quick, let's get the most information that we can, but we're going to make a decision, and they all will know quickly, but they all know because after they've worked a while, if we've made the wrong decision, we're going to be the first to figure out quickly Wrong decision. Actually, Fred was right. We should have done what Fred said. Now we're going this way. Yeah. And that way everybody is willing on the team. When the decision's made, they're all in knowing, look, he'll be the first to admit he messed that one up, and he'll eventually see my point of view, but let's go. So, um, Lara, in, in the, the stories you're telling, I'm, I'm uh, perceiving a, a lot of humility on your part as a leader, that you're not the smartest man in the room. You're not the the big thing never it's, was it's about your people <laughs> yeah i'm just curious where that where that comes from how do how does somebody get to the point where they're like hey i'm here to serve these other people i would say it first came to me from my dad uh, i remember very well I, I mean he taught me a lot about leadership early i was a little kid running adult Teams was uh, in, was in the he the founder of your family business? Uh, his father was. His father, okay. And um, I remember the first couple of things he told me that have served me really well throughout my career. He said, "Your job as the crew leader is to ask two questions. First, ask what is causing them the most frustration in their job and fix it, hmm. get it out of the way. Right. And the second thing to ask them is they're the ones out there doing the hard work." Ask them what one thing would they change if they could to either 
make their job better or make our products better or serve our customers better? Hmm. You know, what one thing would they want to see changed? And then go fix it. Go, go do that. And so, believe it or not, when I got to, I'm an oil field guy. So when I got to waste management, I knew nothing about waste management other than they happened to be the ones to pick up my trash. I knew if I got the container out there on right. The, the right days and at the right time, it would disappear, right. and I didn't have you to worry have to about care. it. Right. Uh, so when I got there, I didn't know anything about that business, and so I started going and actually meeting with drivers at 3 and 4 in the morning before wow. they went on their routes. And wow. I'd tell them what we were doing to try to fix the company. It was badly broken. And so most of the employees were even embarrassed to say they worked there. That's mm. how messed up it was. Wow. I'd tell them what we were doing. Uh, and then I'd pick one. I'd answer their questions. Then I'd pick one of the drivers, and I'd tell him or her, today's your lucky day. I'm going to be your helper today. And of course they go, oh gosh, this right. is going to be the worst day of my life. Right. This guy's not going to know exactly. anything. Exactly. And I did, you know, but I, I got better <laughs> at it. Uh, also from my upbringing, I always hated to be viewed as the boss's son. That mm. was the worst thing you could call me. Right. And so even when I was a little kid, you know, I would outwork anybody because I wanted people to want me on their crew because of what a good colleague I was, you know, not because I was the boss's son. And so when I'd be out on those trucks, the last thing I wanted was that driver to come back and tell the rest of the team, that guy's the biggest weenie you've ever seen. You know, He only has this job because he's the boss's son. Yeah, I, I was working even on the waste management trucks. Yeah. Uh, so I would get out there and people would go, What's he doing I did here? this throughout my throughout my time at, at waste management. People would go, "Why is the president of the company spending a whole day picking up trash on the back of a truck? Right. That that just seems like a total waste of time." Hmm. I'm gonna tell you, I learned more about what was working and what wasn't by spending that day doing that than I did sitting in my desk in the ivory tower, you know, in downtown Houston. Right. Uh, and I would ask them the same things, and they would. They tell me uh, that's actually how we first built the operating model, the single operating model out of 1,200 companies, mm-hmm. is by getting the input from the employees, doing the frontline jobs, what's working, what's not, how can we make this the best company and, and make it where people want to work here. And then when you get that feedback, you got to do something about it right. because it's worse to ask and to do nothing. That's even worse. Now you've destroyed all trust. Sure. And once once you do that, I, you know, we had like 25,000 trucks. They have more now. Uh, I couldn't go get with 25,000 drivers. I mean, I guess I could have, but I'd still be at it even today. <laughs> um, you know, I was modeling the behavior that I wanted others to do. Yeah. Get input from the front line, listen to them, and then serve them. Uh, and that's how we built the operating model. I know that the team there has even taken it to new levels. It's even gone way beyond uh, what we started with. But that builds this trust and camaraderie because they see that the leader isn't just in it for himself or right. herself. Right. It's like, man, this guy really cares about us. And look what he did. I, this has been a problem around here for years. He fixed it. And he fixed it. Right. Uh, and it gets around. It gets around really, really quick. Uh, so it builds that kind of trust. And then, you know, biblically, uh, that's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus modeled in Matthew 20. Mm-hmm. 
that story for your listeners, I'm sure they know the story well, but two of the disciples basically got their mom to go, you know, ask Jesus when he ascends into his kingdom, put them at the left and right hand side of him. He took that point or that moment to bring all the disciples together and say, hey, look, here's how the Gentiles rule. They lord it over everyone. Right. That's not how I want you to lead. Hmm. He said, I came to serve, not to be served, hmm. and actually go so far. He, he said, you know, I, I even want you to be slaves to everyone. Hmm. Um, that's the servant leadership model that he gave. And then, you know, he proceeded to even wash their feet right. later and say, this is the example I'm giving you. Serve people. And that really got my attention when I saw that in the Bible. I mean, here's Jesus, God, you know, Lord, King, and he's serving. And he's telling us to serve. And so, as, and I go over this in my book, you know, the, the typical leadership model that's used today, I call it the top-down leadership model. Yeah, you know, it's command a Command and control. It's a pyramid. The leader's at the top. Everybody else is down here. They, they salute. They usually worked really hard to get there. Right. And now that they're there, they're the Tell smartest. what to do. They, and, right. and as long as everybody's there serving the leader, they're good. As soon as they quit serving the leader, the leader doesn't need them anymore. Um, that's the opposite model is the servant leadership model. And it actually, you take the pyramid and turn it, turn it upside up, down. down. And the leader's down at the bottom serving everyone else. And that model looks like the, the leader is there, has the best interest of everyone on the team, um, is trying to help them progress in their career, is pouring into them, uh, is even you know, modeling Jesus Christ to them. Uh, helping them if they help, helping them see Christ. Uh, well, that, again, that's what, that, that's that, the servant leadership model. Yeah, that sounds a lot like Philippians too. Yes, put others' interests ahead of yourself. Ahead of yourself, right? Correct. And that's where empathy comes in. Uh, empathy is the magic that makes all of that come together. Well, then you were like the perfect person to. Uh, Perfect. Be, be no, the, I'm not the, perfect in anything. You, you were the perfect person to be the first CEO on Undercover CEO. That's interesting how that came about. Um, like you'd been, a, you'd been modeling and practicing that, yes. auditioning for that for years. They had this concept, and it, it's a good one, yeah. that management and leaders don't have a clue what's really going on on the front line, right. Okay, it, which is – there's a lot That's of distance accurate. between the street and the office. That's accurate. Right. They were trying to get somebody of one of the big Fortune 500 companies to do it. Nobody, everybody was telling them no. They end up, they were pretty smart people. They go to the biggest PR firm in the country that's based in L.A., who we were using because we were trying to get our – um, reputation restored after fixed. it was right. destroyed with right. what the prior management had done. And I was working with the principals very closely for a number of years, so they knew I was going out and doing this. So these producers, they go and they say, hey, would any of your big companies, I think they represented half of the Fortune 200, wow. would any of your clients be interested in this concept? And they said, you know what? We know just the company, and we know just the guy. You're hmm. not going to believe because he's already doing this. Um, wow. But it's going to be a hard sell because he's not one that likes bringing attention to himself. So they bring it to me, and I go, reality TV? Yeah, right. No way. 
I said, I don't even watch reality TV, but the little bit I know about it, it's people that have severe character flaws, <laughs> and they want everyone in the world to know about it, and I just assume keep mine to myself, okay? <laughs> right. I'm not – no, I'm not doing it. And, of course, our marketing group was, oh, this is going to be great for the company. We're going to get all this free advertising. It's going to – and by this time, by the way, waste management is way out of the ditch. I mean, we mm -hmm. are flying. We're, we're doing You're great. rolling. We're yeah. rolling. Reputation restored. Things are going great. Stock's doing great. Uh, everything, you know, employees are happy. It's like, I don't really want to do this. A lot can go wrong. Well, then on top of that, I find out that we will have no editing rights. And I said, no, I'm out. No, we're not doing this. Yeah. I don't know what they're doing. You know, I, I don't know these risky. people. Yeah. So I take it to the board, board of directors. I said, okay, here's this opportunity. I don't want to do it. The marketing people tell me I'm totally wrong. It's going to be unbelievable for the company. The production company tells me it's not about me. It's about putting a, a telling the great stories from the frontline employees, and I know because I hear them every time I go out. Yeah. So I, you know what I, you're going to hear. I get that. Right. It's going to be great stories. I said, so that's the upside. The downside is we have worked our tails off turning this company around, and I don't know what these people are going to film. I don't know how they're going to put it together. We have no editing rights. Anything, one little bad thing can destroy yeah. all that we've done. Right. So I don't want to do it. What do you think? And they said, yeah, you've analyzed it right. It could be unbelievable for the company. It could also be a disaster. Hope you make the right decision. <laughs> did you go to your mentor? I go, thanks. Yeah, I did. I did. Well, he, good. he thought I was crazy. Um, they came back to us and said, okay, look, we can't get anybody. There's no one interested in doing this. We will guarantee that you are the first one that will be aired. We didn't know then it'd be after the Super Bowl. That's a whole other story, how that came about. Yeah, We're going to film yours first. We're going to use yours to attract other companies, and we're going to film the whole first season first before yours even airs. So I thought, okay, they might make everybody else look bad, but they're not going to get any other companies unless they make us look really good. Right. So I decided to go ahead with it, and it turned out great. Um, it was, it did things for the company that we didn't even imagine. I mean, we were having a hard time hiring people. Who mm -hmm. wants to go work for a, for a waste, garbage right, company? Right. I mean, and at the time, you remember The Sopranos was out there. Everybody mm -hmm. thought it was a show, right. so everybody thought we were part of the mafia or something. Right. Um, right. So we were really having a hard time hiring people at all levels of the organization. I mean, it's a big company. Yeah. You need all kinds of engineers, accountants, you, you know, you need all kinds of people, not just the drivers guys. and mechanics, it, which right. you need those too. Um, it was unbelievable. How, we had to set up a whole queue when you dialed into our company. If you're calling because you want a job, because you saw waste management, push one. If you if you saw the, uh, I'm sorry, undercover boss. If you saw undercover boss and now you want to become a customer, push two. It it it, it blew up. It blew up. It was unbelievably good. That we didn't get paid anything for doing it, but sure, it, it had enormous benefits for the company. That's fun. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. 
You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So where does your faith factor into all of this work that you're doing all these years? All over it. Tell me more. Uh, I mean, I can see it. I can feel it. Yeah. Let me tell you a personal story that uh, is still a little hard to tell, but it will um, sort of shape this discussion. My wife and I, we've been married 42 years. Our first child named Lindley, uh, when she was born, she was born totally normal. Uh, we brought her home from the hospital, and as soon as we got her home, after feeding, after her feeding, she was in distress. Hmm. She was not a happy camper. Right. Something was wrong. And my wife talked to her mom, and her mom reminded her that my wife, Dare, had been intolerant to lactose as an infant. She said, look, just put her on some soy formula. I'm sure she'll be fine. We did that. That solved the problem. She was great. Very happy, sleeping, you know. We took her in for her two-month checkup, and the pediatrician said, yeah, that's got to be what it is. Um, but just to make sure, I'm going to send you down to the medical center we were living in Houston. Let's have some tests run and just make sure that's all that's going on. So we did that. Unfortunately, we got with a doctor who had never done this test on a little two-month-old. Oh, He'd man. always done it on adults. Wow. And he mistakenly blew a bunch of air into her stomach that caused her to throw up and aspirate. And she was without oxygen for an extended period of time. Oh, Long story short, she was in intensive care for about four months. And also all the medication that they gave her also in the lack of oxygen damaged her kidneys and her liver. She, she was a mess. So they said, she's not going to make it. You might want to just take her home and let her die peacefully at home. And we did that. Oh my God! And we went and um, uh, you know made funeral arrangements yeah, and, and right. got prepared. Uh, good news from that: she's now 37, uh, severely handicapped. Uh, you know, wow. mental incapacities, physical impairments. She's in a wheelchair. Uh, she's been in intensive care about every four years on average of her life, uh, with life-threatening, not going to make it situation. Um, and then somehow, through God's blessing, she, she makes it through that. What's interesting about that is when it happened, I was very angry at God. I'll bet. I didn't lose my faith, yeah. but I said, God, you, you got the this, wrong guy. How could you let yeah, this Yeah, why? This why? is not fair. Right. I mean, so I give him my spiritual resume, you know. I've done everything I, yet. I, right. I, I've been leading Bible studies since high school, you know, I share my faith at work. Uh, I'd never miss church, you know. Right. Here, here's all my things. My pedigree. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> like he doesn't know. God used that 
to totally change me hmm. because I didn't realize it, but all these attributes that I've been telling you that sound like they're good things, like working mm-hmm. real hard, I mm-hmm. thought I could outwork anyone and get anything, get anywhere I wanted to be. I was in control. Uh, it was really – it's kind of sick. I, it was all about me. Yeah, it's your Philippians 3 list. It was, Exactly. It was all about all me. All the reasons why God should be really impressed with me. Yes. And God used that terrible tragedy, and I hope your listeners will see that your worst tragedies, the things that you go through, God wants to use those in a powerful way mm. if we will just let him. Mm. And he showed me that I was not in control. It was about him and his plan, not my plan that I had for my daughter. Hmm. And my anger slowly turned into guilt. I started thinking, well, this must have happened because I did something. This is the consequence uh, of some sin I did. I mean, how could it couldn't have been my daughter? She hadn't been around, right. you know, right. she's, she's not around long enough to have done it. And I was reading in the Gospel of John one morning, and you know, it's the story where Jesus is walking with some of the disciples, and they come upon the blind man right. who sinned to cause this. Cause this. Yes, the, this man or his parents. I go, that's my question. That's it. And where's the answer? And Jesus said, it wasn't this man's sin or his parents. It's so that the works of God could be shown through yeah. him. And that was just a weight lifted off my heart. I said, okay, I get it. You're up to something with Lindley. I'm, I'm letting go of control. Yeah, I already had her being a cheerleader and yeah. married, and I already had grandkids. You know, yeah. I had it all he had planned. had the script all written. He said, nope, I got a different, whole different plan. You just got to trust me. And God used that to teach me empathy because I had no empathy for others. So it was Zero. A, it was a severe mercy. Yes. And that has served me well. Yeah. And I think because of that – now, I care for people like I never did before. Uh, he used that in a powerful way in my life. Totally changed me. Totally. Well, I'm a huge believer, particularly the older I get, in the value of brokenness. And uh, uh, I often get asked by you know, boards, uh, uh, both of churches and businesses who are getting ready to hire somebody, you know, Bill, uh, what, what do you think we should ask this candidate that we have? And a question that I've uh, been encouraging boards to ask is, um, ask the person, what's the worst adversity you've ever been through, and how did you respond, and what did you take away from it? And if they've been through something severe like that... I think everybody has something. They're going to. They're going to, they're going they to but <laughs> let's say they've already been through that. Yep. You know, you'll find out a lot about their character. And if they haven't yet, that that's not you know grounds to say, well, then we're not going to hire you. It, you just have to hire them, knowing it could happen on your watch. Yes. And if it does, they will be their heart will be tested, and yes. you will find out who you hired. And. Uh, but I do. I'm with you. I believe God always is up for our highest good, and so even the tragic things that happen, seemingly to us, um, He wants to use those things in some redemptive way in our lives. I totally agree. And what I'm, 
I haven't mastered any of this that we're talking about, so I hope none of your listeners think I'm here trying to say, look at me, I'm the expert in I servant leadership no, I get or it. empathy or <laughs> any of this. Uh, You've just been through your experience. I've at least uh, I've gotten past the first step of the 12-step program. I know I got a problem. I am getting better at it, uh, but I'm not a master. But one thing, because I've studied this a lot in the Bible, and what's fascinating to me is when you look at the Apostle Paul, how many bad situations that he's in. And mm-hmm. you know, I think what would be my reaction if Jesus appeared to me and said, "Okay, look." Here's what I'm going to do with your life. You know, you're you're going to help build the church. You're going to be my man for the Gentiles. Right. You're, you're going to be the guy. You're okay. Like, Great. I'm all I, in. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Show me the hill. Let's go attack it. I'm ready to go. I'm one of those Type A driven people. And then the next thing I'm and then I'm there's in, the fine I'm in, print. I'm in prison. The fine print. You're in prison. Or in chains or whatever. Right. I'd be going. I'd be complaining and whining this. and saying, "Wait, this isn't what you told me. This isn't right. that'd been my reaction." Right. But if we look at Paul, mm. Paul has taught me that when you're in those situations, like my daughter, and now I understand it. Looking back on it, I didn't handle it well when I was going through it. Don't ask why. Ask what. Mm. What are you trying to teach me, or what are you trying to do through this situation to either help me or help others around us, around me, to learn to be more Christ-like? What are you trying to teach me? So instead of saying why and moaning and groaning about it, ask what. What is it that you want me to do here? Mm-hmm. This is not what I was planning, but I trust you. I mean, you're in control. That's good. You've done something here, so. Look for the what rather than the why. The why doesn't matter. The why is it's because that's what God's plan is. Okay, that's the why. So get over it. You're not going to understand it completely till you get there. Uh, I don't fully understand everything God was doing yeah. through my daughter's situation, but I trust it, hmm. and I've seen the good that's come out of it. Um, I mean, she is an inspiration to me. That's wonderful. Well, we've got about five minutes left, and I know that. You do a lot of mentoring, and as you said at the beginning, you you really encourage others to do mentoring. And so on that thought, I'm just curious, um, what's your encouragement to people who – mentoring sounds like a really intimidating thing to them. They're like, I don't have anything to offer. You know, I'm not wise. I'm not this. Everybody has something to offer. Well, so how do they get that going? Where where could they engage? Everybody – I think everybody should have a mentor and everybody should be a mentor. And so, like I say, I'm not saying I was doing it well, but I was trying to do it when I was in high school. I was trying to do it when I was in college. Mm. Um, There's always somebody out there that can benefit from the experiences that you've been through. So it's really from your life experience. It's not that I know all these answers to all these questions. No. Like I say, the best mentors I've had they didn't even know my business, but they knew how to ask the right they, – they asked probing questions that helped me figure out what the right answer was. Right. So you don't have to know their business better. It's always better to have somebody who's mentoring you that maybe has – maybe they're a little more mature in their faith. Maybe they've got some more – if it's a business situation, they're a little more – They're a little They have more the life road. experiences right. that they can draw upon exactly. as, as analogies. 
But then what, what I'm really into now, I mean, this is just, uh, I'm, I'm so focused on this, is it's a subset of mentoring that I call discipleship. And that is actually where you pour into people. I take on about, on average, about four men a year. Mm-hmm. I spend, I meet with them individually, not as a group, once a week for about an hour for a year. And before we begin, they have to be willing and be wanting to become a disciple maker themselves. So they have to agree on the front end, I will pour into them for a year, but when they graduate, when I determine that they're ready to go, they now have to go do the same to somebody else. Okay? So it's really what we're called to do that most people think it's the pastor's job to do, mm-hmm. but if you go look in Ephesians 4, 11, exactly. it, it says the pastors are there and the yeah, teachers exactly. are there to equip us to, to go build work. up there the body go. of Christ. There you go. That's our job. Right. I always thought it was the pastor's job. Mm-hmm. When you go look at the Great Commission, you know, right. um, in Matthew 28, I always thought, yeah, that's the pastor's job. No, that's, that's our true. job. That's all of our jobs. Right. So in order to do that, if that's our job, we ought to all be able to point to our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I'm talking about spiritually, uh, not physical children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Who have we poured into and matured them enough where they're capable of going and pouring into somebody and so on and so on? Right. That is what we're called to do. That's what Jesus modeled. So... You know, if you say that you're a follower of Christ, that's your mandate. You're supposed to be a fisherman of men. So, where are your fish? Where are your children? Where are your grandchildren? Hmm. And I've actually discovered that there are a ton of pastors that have not been discipled. Well, exactly right. So, I've discipled pastors, and they've now put that program in place at their church, and it is just taking off. Uh, I do it with individuals. I encourage everyone to do it. And just for your listeners to know, DTS is now putting in place a discipleship program. Correct. Um, and I encourage people to look into it, take it on. It is so rewarding. You're working with some students, right? Yes. I, I take on students, a group of students, but there's others. I mean, I think we've already put several hundred right. through the, the program just in the last year and a half, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I encourage students and others to look into this uh, it I get a lot out of helping people progress in their business career but you want to really feel like you've made an impact on the kingdom go help somebody progress in their faith that's where right. they can then carry out what we've been commanded to do that's make disciples and I, I look forward to showing up in heaven and Seeing great grandchildren, great 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 grandchildren, you, you know that that's what I'm excited. Whole crowd of people. That exactly, you exactly. Not me, the Holy Spirit working through me. I'm not taking credit for it. Exactly. But the Holy Spirit puts people. I've got a waiting list. They just come. I don't go search for them. I pray, and here they come. That's fantastic. Uh, so I encourage everyone to do it, and it is so rewarding. Well, we need to raise up an army of guys like you, Larry. Thank you for doing that, and I, I just want to thank you for sort of the advertisement, if you will, about the discipleship program that we do have here at the seminary. And I just want to point out, this is not you know some seasoned pastor who's been out there preaching for 20, 30 years, no. pouring into seminarians. This is a businessman who has walked with Christ his whole life, 
and out of that experience, in in the warp and woof of real life, is able to speak into the lives of people that now want to go out and pastor other people. Larry, thank you for being with us. I want to thank you for being with us on the Table Podcast as well. Uh, for the Table Podcast, again, I'm Bill Hendricks. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.